Hello and welcome to the Engineering Futures podcast. I'm your host, Paul Barker, and I'll be helping you explore the world of manufacturing by introducing you to successful people from across the sector. We'll touch on everything from personal experiences and professional challenges to contemporary issues affecting the sector, careers advice, and practical steps for employers who are looking to attract the top engineering talent. Join us as we get to know the people who have made a difference within the sector. Okay, so welcome Valentine, um, latest guest on the Engineering Futures podcast. Um, so how are you doing today? I'm very well, Paul, thank you, and I am delighted to be there. Good, good, good. So we'll just we'll just kick it off just with a quick introduction. So if you just let everyone know kind of who you are and, and what you do. So my name is Valentine uh, Pietri. I'm sure you can hear I'm French. I am a mechanical engineer um, by trade and I have studied and worked in manufacturing for the last 20 years until this year uh, where I founded my own company, Grow and Sustain. Um, which is all about uh, mentoring and supporting women in STEM to allow them to reach their goal, whatever they are. And I am also supporting companies for consultancy work to help them make their workplace more inclusive. Okay. Okay. Very good. So we'll come on, we'll come on into onto that in a little bit more detail as, as we kind of get into it. Um, I suppose the first question I would like to ask you, the first thing I would like to know is what inspires you to, to, to become an engineer? And was there anyone who, who, in, who helped inspire you to make that decision? Right. So, you know, Star Wars? R2-D2, the little robot, is a guilty culprit. So uh, when I was a kid, I loved Star Wars and I loved robots, still do. And I think for me, it all stems from there. Like, as you know, as far as I can remember, I loved robots. And I was like, ooh, I want to know how they work. I want to build them. I want to, you know. And then the more I watched Star Wars, the more I was like, Look at Princess Leia. She's so great. She interacts with the robot. She's a diplomat. Um, you know, she's a warrior. She's, you know, she she rules, and uh, that really inspired me. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. So, so from seeing that, then, how did you? So, how old were you when you? Oh gosh, I was. I think I was. I was really small, like five. You know, five, six. And I remember after that, um, everyone in my family uh, bought me mechanos. Um, do you have do you have mechanos in England as well? You know, like so. Um, I remember playing with I still have them somewhere. The the kids mechanos, you know, the bigger ones. And then as I grew a little bit older, the finer ones, so you could do the helicopter. And um, yeah, so I think after that, uh, because I was interested, everyone in my family supported me. And there was never a, oh, that's for boys, or oh, that's, no, you're interested, there you go. Hours of peace and quiet for the parents. <laughs> so uh, in terms of having, so you, then you've kind of had an idea that you want to like fix robots and bear robots and, uh, and uh, do that yeah. kind of stuff. So at what point, so when did you, 
how did you enter the engineering sector then? What what was what was how did you first start in that role? Um, so I think for me, uh, so for me, uh, there's been a few turning points. So one, when I was in uh, junior high school, I think it's the English equivalent. So I was 10, 11. We had one hour a week of technology where we learn how to do welding, how to do drilling, how to do plastic forming, how to do 3D. And when I look back, that was pretty advanced what we did. And I just loved it. And I knew I wanted to do more of that in uh, high school. So when I had to choose my option when I was about 14, um, I chose the, you know, the curriculum that had the, more, the most technology. I think it was three hours a week, four hours a week, something like that. And uh, I had to change high school and I ended up in a class with three girls out of 30. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't even imagined that there's that many guys. I was like, oh, that's going to be exciting. I loved it. So I did that for three years. And then um, when I passed my baccalaureate, which is, I never know if it's the A-level or GCSE, the one you, you have when you're 18 in France, I had to decide, okay, what do I want to do with my life? And I knew I love technology. I love mechanics. I used to love, you know, the hand drawing old fashioned. And um, I was like, okay, I had all the grades. Why not? And I thought as well, you know, being an engineer, I can not only, um, you know, work with interesting technology, but I can travel because it's a job where you can easily travel around the world. And I was like, this is a no brainer. And so my, uh, 17 years old self decided to go and become a mechanical engineer. Uh, and it's slightly different in France, but the, we do um, uh, make a mechanical engineering school. Um, to become an engineer, you have to go through those engineering schools, and which is the equivalent of a master here um, in England, a university master, but with a lot more um, hands-on approach, very hands-on. You know, you have a lot of internship, you have a lot of uh, working with a machine on the shop floor to do exercises and such and such. So that's how I became an engineer. And in terms of then, what was your first job in the sector? So my first job was contractor in Belgium. I knew I wanted to work abroad, so I looked for jobs abroad. And that contracting company contacted me and uh, was like, oh, you have a lot of experience through your internship. I had done 18 months of internship, six in France, six in Japan and four in Italy. They were like, yeah, you have quite a bit of, um, you know, already a bit of experience. We're looking for someone for a six months contract to work in um, the quality department of a um, company that does um, very cutting edge technology. I was like, oh, cutting edge technology. That speaks to me. And Belgium, this is abroad. And quality, well, that would make me a better engineer, the more roundup engineer to see that. So that was my first role. Now I ended up staying three years as a contractor in quality in that particular company because I loved it and I, you know, I moved uh, along the within the quality department. The cutting edge technology was very cutting edge. So it was, um, I was working on proton, proton therapy centers, which are basically big 
um, so you take a cyclotron, um, which is a particle accelerator, you know, radioactive particle accelerator that sends a beam in a machinery that's like a one-story house uh, size, and that sends uh, radioactive beams into a patient's um, cancer cells very accurately without burning everything around that cell. So very fascinating technology. I'm explaining that very poorly, but there's a lot of optics, radioactive, coding, mechanics, electronics, such and such. So working in quality with the environment, I could not have done that job without my accumulated technical knowledge. It was impossible. You cannot check something that complicated without understanding it. So um, that was my first role. And after three years, I was like, ooh, I fancy moving country again and exploring the world a bit more. And I just happened to have a friend who was working in Safran. Uh, at, at the time, it was Aircell in uh, Burnley uh, in Lancashire. And she was like, oh, there's that role in quality. It's exactly like what you do in Belgium. Do you want to, do you want me to send you the ad? I was like, oh, okay, why not? And I applied. And I got it. And the rest is history. That was nine years ago. A bit more than nine years ago, actually, now. And after I was in Safran, I evolved. And I did, uh, I think, every 18 months to two years, I changed roles. Oh. Within Safran, you changed roles. Within Safran, yeah. 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 And that's that's quite interesting. And was that your choice to kind of to change roles and to keep innovating and keep learning and developing as an individual? Because sometimes... It's easy, and especially I imagine coming from coming from a different country, that you might feel safe and secure in a certain role. I think to put yourself, you know, how did you, how did you find putting yourself out there and and, and absorbing new things and, and overcoming the language barrier as well, especially in Burnley where we've got kind of like nice thick <laughs> accents, you know. How did you how did you come up with the, uh, the the local lingo? So I think for me. Uh, you know, how did I find putting myself out there? Um, it all stems from my first ever experience living abroad. So when I was uh, 20 years old, I went for six months working in um, laboratory, a university laboratory in Japan. My English was really bad, really bad. I did not speak Japanese and I had to speak with people in English. And you know what? After that, everything was easy. <laughs> <coughs> So that was because that was such a shock to the system. And I realized that actually, do you know what? Yes, I didn't speak the language. Yes, the culture was so different. I still could find a way to communicate. I could still work with people. We could still understand each other. I could still find my way around life. And I could, uh, that was a time, you know, where I didn't have a smartphone. You didn't have Google map. You didn't have the automatic translator. That was, I was 15 years ago, but you know, might as well be a, millennial ago for some people so uh, you know so I had to really deal with it by myself and I did it and it was fun and and I think that really shaped my you know the way I see life oh yeah sounds impossible oh yeah that sounds out of comfort zone it'll be fun let's go for it so that's that's the way I've managed my career am I interested do I want to do it I know I can. What's the worst that can happen? What's the best that can happen? And so 
Uh, to answer your question about Burnley, I have to admit that although in Belgium I had been working in English quite a lot, it took me three full months to understand a word of what my boss was telling me. <laughs> so my, my colleague that was sat next to me, I remember vividly, the boss was coming, asking me something in a proper, proper strong accent with the lips in, and I was like, and I was like yes, yes. And then I was like, what did he say? <laughs> what does he want? So that was, uh, yeah, that was a challenge. Uh, one thing I would say, though, is that I've got lifelong skills. So now um, when I speak on certain words, I've got proper Burnley accents. I swear like a Burnley man. You know, I have spent far too long on the Burnley shop floor and far too long at a Burnley football club. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was lucky that... Um, I was in a company that offered that many opportunities and I never, I never limited myself. I'm not saying it's been easy not to limit myself. I really had to, yeah, it's not been handed to me on a platter, all those opportunities to change every 18 months or two years. It definitely hasn't been handed to me on a platter. Um, but I knew where I wanted to go and there was nothing stopping me. I, I knew where I wanted to go. I knew I could do it and I went for it. And they took a chance on you. They gave you that opportunity as well to kind of, you know, reach your potential and to, and to be the success that you've, you've got on to be. And I think that, you, you know, I would imagine that you're grateful for the company, you know, to allow you to kind of, you know, grow and, yes. and develop. I think for me, um, I'm grateful to very specific individual with whom I would have never had the career I had uh, without them. And the, the, the company itself is really supportive in developing talents. I think that's something to be said to, to, you know, to the credit of the company. They really want to develop talents. Um, and to keep them. There's so many people that have been in this company for 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, I never thought I'd stayed nine years. It's like you would have told me that at the beginning. I was like, whoa, 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 five years max. And, you know, and for me to stay nine years, I was, um, it's because I kept developing, I kept learning, I kept having fun. But for me, when I look, there's been... Yes, I can, I can identify four people, really, that have been, um, um, what's the word, very influential in my career. So one, it's a director who decided I need to go and work. I was working on the, as a quality engineer on the oldest product of the company, uh, which was at the time the most profitable. And he was like, oh, there is a new development. We'll put Valentin. Uh, because she's very rigorous, she speaks French, it will work a lot with France, uh, she'll understand, and, yeah, and, you know, that really what, from there, I got the opportunity to do green belts, you know, Lindsay, my green belts, and so that, that stemmed from it. The second person was my manager, who, when, at a time, when I was a quality engineer, um, I had been a quality engineer for several years, and I was like, oh, shall I apply to that continuous improvement role? 
you know, continuous improvement manager. And I was like, as much as I don't limit myself, they were asking for a lot of things. You know, they were asking, you need to have a black Lean Sigma black belt. I don't even have my green belt yet. You know, then you need this and that and that and that. And what she did, and I remember, I remember, you know, the office, I remember her. She was like, right. She opened the job description and she read it line by line. And she said, this, you know how to do it. This, you can do it. This, yeah, you'll learn. This, well, you know, the black belt. You'll do it once you're in the role. That's what they do anyway, which I didn't know. No, but she knew more about the companies than me. Um, yeah, you, you know how to do all of that. Apply. And I was like, yes, boss. And I applied and I got it. And that really what got me into management. And I did um, that Lean Sigma black belt and such. So that was the second person. The third person was my manager uh, when I was in continuous improvement. Uh, she... So she was a woman and she, what she did at the time, which I didn't realize until well after, she really took a mentoring approach, you know, a development and mentoring, not just managing me, but mentoring me, developing me, letting me try things, letting me work things out, but also be a strong support and be a strong ally within the company. And the first person that has been instrumental, if I go a little bit back in time, is when I was working um, as a quality engineer and my job was to eradicate uh, defects on that new product development. You know, when you put together a new, a new product, you always have things to debug at the beginning. That, that's normal, isn't it? And he sat down with me every single day for an hour looking at root cause analysis making sure his team um uh, actioned all the actions that they were supposed to to do and you know one of the things that i've struggled most at the beginning of, of my um of my career is being credible you know being credible being heard when i was asking people uh, to do things you mentioned like how did you do it when you arrived well with great difficulty, let's be honest. I couldn't understand English, uh, but you had that 20 something year old French girl coming onto the shop floor, asking guys who had been there since 10, 15, 20 years to do things because it was a job to do, you know, to, you know, I was doing audits, I was solving problems and I was asking Rauke to solve that problem into the, this action, this action. And they're looking at me like, who is she? Why is she, why is she asking me that? What, you know? Um, and that took a great deal of effort to get anything done. <laughs> By anything, I mean anything. The simplest thing. And I'm laughing now. I was not laughing too much back then. And, you know, that engineer, um, that team leader uh, of this engineering team that sat with me every single day looking at root cause analysis of those problems and then making sure those actions were done, what I did is amplify my voice is making sure we were working together, making sure it was seen we were working together. And I mean, he was doing his job. He was doing a great job. And, and oh, you know, I owe him so much. And I told him, <laughs> I owe him so much because one, I learned tons with him because he was a very seasoned engineer. So I learned tons. And two, he really allowed me to do my job in the best possible um, environment because I felt supported, I felt heard. I felt, you know, like I could be myself, like I can go to the, go to the bottom of things. We didn't always agree, you know, but that's just 
you know, quality and manufacturing engineers are always agree. So um, it's, yeah, so I think those are the four people. That's quite a wrong answer. <laughs> no, and I think that's, uh, you know, really nice to hear that. And I think that, I mean, we've com- come on to mentors a little bit later on, um, but to enable, you know, that clearly enabled you to thrive in that role, to mm-hmm. make you feel that you do have a voice, to make you feel that people are listening to, like you say, amplifying your voice and, Sometimes it takes these people to kind of get on board to get other people on board as well. And you don't feel kind of so alone, do you? Mm, Exactly. And I think, um, you know, that's something I've always been keenly aware because when you're a foreigner in a foreign country, um, you know, you've got like the double barrier. You're like, not only you're a woman in a very male-dominated environment, but you're a foreigner and you don't have the same codes you know, you don't laugh at the same jokes, you don't understand there was a joke, or you make jokes that no one laughs at, oh god, that's, <laughs> that's that, I find that funny now, but the, initially you're a bit like, oh, that that was not funny, okay, so um, it's, it can be very unsettling, and I mean, I've done it plenty of times, let's face it, but because I've done it plenty of times, doesn't mean it's easier, it means that you know what to expect. So it, it unsettles you a bit less. Uh, but also it means when you're in a new company trying to adapt to culture, you know, any any one of us that change uh, role or change environment comes into a new company culture, has to adapt to that culture, you know, you and you fit in or you don't fit in. And sometimes um, when you're a woman, you always have that question that how much how much should I fit in? How much should I become one of the guys? Or is it okay for me to be a woman and not be one of the guys? Uh, I mean, for years I've wanted to be called Mace, you know, because that was a sign that you were one of the guys. Um, and then when on the top of that, you are a foreigner, you're like, okay, that's one additional layer where you don't fit in. And I have to admit that over the years, there's been um, teams and environments where I've strived because I could really fit in you know i've you know i worked with people who were very aware who who, we liked those differences we liked the the conversation we could have have and the different point of view and the different ways of working because a french engineer is trained very differently from an english engineer and there is real um richness in having the two work together because you come at it from a different point of view and you solve problem more efficiently you know, you see, you see more things. And, uh, you know, as much as there's been teams where I've thrived, there has been times where I didn't fit in at all, you know, as a woman, um, as an engineer, as a foreigner, where I was a bit like, what am I doing that to myself? You know, but, you know, that happens to all of us throughout the life of a career, I think. I think, I think it happens to all of us. And it's being able to recognize what's helped me is being able to recognize when what I was feeling was because I didn't fit in, you know, like I was feeling, oh, I'm lonely. Is it because I'm missing fronts? Is it a... No, it's because I don't feel like I belong and I fit in. What can I do to fit in? What can I do to change my environment? What can I do to not be a victim of the situation, you know, to take back the ownership? And I think that what makes a difference is your mindset through life and through the situation. 
So in terms of challenges that you faced as a, as you say, as a, as a, a, a female engineer, as, as a, as a, someone coming from a different country, you know, what would you say were, was some of the biggest challenges that you, that you faced, um, within your career? And that might have been at the start of the career or, or as you've got more into your role, um, and how did you overcome them? So for me, the one, one challenge that remained throughout my entire career. So perhaps a tiny bit of background. So after I moved into continuous improvement and did my Lean Sigma Black Belt, I uh, become a continuous improvement business partner. So I worked with the directors of the business unit to help them put together the strategy and the improvement plan of the business unit. And then I supported the delivery of that improvement plan. So meaning coaching project, mentoring project, doing whatever necessary <laughs> to support the delivery of this improvement plan, uh, you know, running Kaizen and such and such. And then I moved on into being um, the, in charge of the improvement plan for the site, the factory site. And then I became the site risk manager. And when I left, I was leading the digital transformation project for the site. So when I evolved more towards those senior roles, I realized that actually the problem I faced were exactly the same one as, the, as, uh, as what I faced when I started my career. It just, the symptoms were different. So it was all about being heard and being taken seriously. And don't get me wrong, I think we face those issues, um, both as men and women, you know, in, in a career, you know, in an environment. How, how do I get heard? How does my voice carry? How do, how, 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 you know, how do I have people taking me seriously? I think though, although we both men and women face it, it is a bigger problem for women. And I've definitely, yeah, I've definitely felt it across, uh, across my career. So for me, a few symptoms, you're in a meeting, you talk, it's clearly, you know, you're clearly the expert on the topic. No one's listening to you. So what do you do? There's lots of tactics. I'm not going to enter into there because we'd be there for two hours, but, um, there's lots of things, you know, people cut over you. So now I'm the queen of cutting over people. I've learned that. Uh, I'm not saying don't do that. Don't do that. People, this is rude. You know, this is rude, but this is one thing that I developed, uh, over my career. I was like, well, if you're cutting, I'm cutting right by you, not me, you know, this is, so don't do that. This is not a healthy, uh, working uh, practice. Um, one thing I had to develop to be heard and, uh, to be taken seriously is one I had to work really hard and to prove results. You know, one thing as a woman, you have to prove results. So you have to show your results. They need to be tangible. They need to be written. They need to be measurable. And then there need to be no question asked about how good of a job you've done. And I've seen that time and time again, um, men, women equal performance. What happens is that one, the woman will don't downplay her performance saying, oh, it wasn't that big of a job. It really was. You know, where the man will actually statistically, the man will speak 33% more 
about how good of a job it was or is done. And they don't know why. They don't they don't know why. They've not found, you know, the it's not a confidence matter. It's not a oh I want that pay rise matter. They don't know why. So straight away there is this. Uh, you know, equal job. As a woman, we're not talking as much about how much of a good job we've done, but equally, people looking at our job will find it normal for a woman. Yes, you've done a good job, of course. You're like, that what was expected. Uh, but looking at perhaps a male counterpart, um, oh, well done, mate, that was great. Thank you so much, da, 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 da. And you're like, seriously? <laughs> so, but frankly, um, one, you get used to it, <coughs> which, which is wrong, but you do. Uh, it's, it's a reality. So I think for me, that's one, you know, one thing that was uh, really impactful. But what you have to do after that is develop your influencing skills. You know, how, do you, how, do, how are you taken seriously? If you do such a good job and people don't really see it, how do you promote your work so it's visible? And that's where it, it's very important to have good, strong allies uh, within the companies and have developed that, those relationships. Because naturally, as a woman, you are different from people around you. So they will relate less to you. That's normal. You know, humans, we like people that are like us. So if naturally uh, you're not like the people around you, I'm not, I'm not saying they like you less, but naturally, naturally you'll fit in less well. So what you have to do is to find another way to fit. Um, if you're not, you're not a man, you're never going to be a man. You know, you can try as much as you want if you're interested, you know, to talk on topics you have in common with people. I mean, I spent years talking about football. I don't like football, but that was my way of fitting it. You have to develop the influencing skills. How do I get my work at the forefront? How do I show my value? How do I build a relationship without selling my soul? Soul, you know, I'm not talking about uh, brown nosing here. Excuse my language. I'm talking about showing the good work you're doing, making it visible for people to see in a way that there is, they have no other option to say, wow, what a good job. Actually, you're really good. How do I promote you? So there is an unfairness into that in the way that it feels like the women have to do all the job. You know, they have to do all the work to get promoted. It shouldn't be like that. It should be that anyone who look at their work be like, wow, that's a brilliant work. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I'm thinking back to, you know, do you think some of this is that, and I'm not saying all men, but what I found is what, working in the sector sometimes men are uncomfortable around around women they don't know how to engage they don't you know do you think do you think there's an element of that as well it's their own insecurities that kind of affect your ability to be one of the team you know do you think there's an element of that um i'll answer with an example I've, very, I've, I've had, I mean, I'm quite, you know, as much as uh, I could describe myself as um, a hand of steel in a soft glove, 
uh, in terms of uh, in, uh, influencing skills. The only times in my career where I've had extremely strong, almost violent arguments were with men 45 to 50 years old. And it, it had nothing to do with them. It had nothing to do with me. It was just, um, you know, there was a situation. And I think for me, reflecting back, I do think that my behavior, what was driving me, what I was displaying in terms of, you know, attributes. I'm not saying I was the best. I was not, you know, like when you're young, you've, <laughs> well, you know, you go for things, don't you? Um, I think that could have been perceived as threatening. That was threatening a certain view of the world, threatening a feeling of, but I know how to do that. I've got all that experience and she's got less experience. And why is she doing it perhaps better or perhaps in a different way? And she's just a girl, you know? And I was just a girl. I was in my late 20s when I had all those issues. She's like, she could be my daughter, you know? And, you know, so I think there is that perception um, that I have seen quite a few times happening of being perceived as threatening, especially when young, you're a your young woman climbing the ladder, perhaps quite fast, uh, and being quite direct and knowing what you want and not being scared of saying what you want and not, and not taking no for an answer. I mean, I take no prisoner when I want something. But equally, I'm in an environment where I have to take no prisoner if I want something, otherwise I'd never get anything. Do, do you know what I mean? So... Um, so I think that can be really perceived as threatening because that threatens a certain view of the world. And that view of the world has been shaped by centuries and centuries and centuries and millennia of histories. I mean, I'm not going to redo a world history there, but I think we both know that historically women have a certain place in society. And I mean, it's only recently that the women can vote, that women can have a bank account, then... I mean, it's been like a century, it's, which when you look at the scale of the world, it's nothing. So there are some, um, I think, some perceptions, some biases that are very ingrained in society, but not personally, I've come not to blame it on individuals. You know, when I was younger, I'm not saying when I had those arguments or when I had men telling me I will not work for a young woman. Oh, yeah, I definitely did blame it on the individual, let's face it. Now I'm, um, you know, I've got a bit, um, I took a step back on, on those topics and I looked at it slightly differently. I really think that for men in those environments to feel more comfortable around um, young women and to feel more comfortable around uh, women managers, you know, because then after, you know, once you become a manager and you have to manage men twice your age, you will have so much more experience than you. But you as a manager, that's a whole different set of challenges, isn't it? And that's where you can even have more clash because you're definitely threatening. It's like, what? You're like, what? Who is she to tell me what to do? You're like, um, it's not, it's not them. It's society. It's the way our legal system is put together, the way our educational system is put together. It's, a, it's, you know, I'll give you an example. Paternity leaves. Like, why do men not have paternity leaves the same as women? 
um, I was reading recently that there are 74 companies in the UK that have now installed equal maternity and paternity leave for for the employees. You know, the, it's for people to change and evolve and feel more at ease and feel less threatened. Society needs to change and it starts by the rules in place. The rules at government level, the rules at company level. If both have the same paternity and maternity leaves, they're both as invested. The kids will be as invested in their relationship with men and women. I don't have kids, so I'm perhaps not the best person to talk about that. Uh, and I fully acknowledge it. But it's, it's creating straight away that balance. So then, you know, it's not always mommy that's called when the child is ill at a nursery. And then the impact on the career is exactly the same on mommy and daddy. And because the impact on the career and the break, you know, for the maternity and paternity leave is the same, well, then perhaps that removes that bias is, oh, yeah, but, you know, she's, if she's going to have kids, we can't have her in that role because we need someone that will be fully present for that project. I would have been really interested to know what would have happened to my career if I'd had kids. Yeah, I think it's a very good point. And I think that it's... It's funny, isn't it? Because when you when you so there's, I mean, just thinking about when I was an apprentice working in 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 a company in Burnley on the shop floor, and what the perception of those older older men was of of the young women who worked in the organisation, and I think that you know ignorance, ignorance, lack of education, call it what you will, but um, but what you've got to remember as well is these people. So there's a working men's club in the area mm. that until until recently, and I'm talking about maybe like within the 10, 15 years, they used to have a line that separated the bar to where the snooker mm. tables were that women couldn't cross. Women weren't allowed to walk over that line. And these are the people that was that will be going into those working men's clubs that see this line that a woman can't cross are, are now working in these factories expecting women to have to have an equal voice well that's just never going to happen is it do you know what i mean and and whilst you can't whilst you can't condone their can't condone their outlook on terms of black quality you can argue it's probably not necessarily their fault because it's, I agree. It's where they live exactly i agree and i completely agree with you for me it's much bigger than the, the individuals it's about the rules within society so now if that now that line is not there anymore and the younger generation going to that working clubs are not going to see that line what's going to happen i'd be interested to know you know and and that's the same for everything so for me there are two things one the lines needs to move at government and at company level. We cannot remove the um, responsibilities that companies have to make those lines move because they can if they want. But first, they need to acknowledge there is a line, which most companies don't. More and more do because the law, government, is forcing them towards, you know, um, corporate social responsibility, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those are topics companies now have to talk about. But the same as health and safety perhaps 30 years ago. Now we talk about them. And then we have to really do something about it. Health and safety, now. We are 
it's taken very seriously nowadays, isn't it? Which is good. So the lines are moving, and there is there is really um, responsibility at governments, at, at companies, and at you know council levels. But I also think there is um, re you know um, individual responsibilities, both for men and women, to educate themselves, to listen when they talked about to. Because it's easy to be, to, to you know, I can't even count how many discussions like that I've had in the last few months. It's explaining what the problems are. I'm like, okay, here are the difficulties I faced as a woman in the manufacturing world. Tuk, 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 tuk. But what about men? They face difficulties too. That's the number one response I get to every single conversation. Which is why I'm always very cautious. You might have noticed throughout this conversation to say both men and women, because I want men to keep listening to this conversation and not just switch off saying that she's ranting about feminism again, you know. And I'm not exaggerating. I wish I was, frankly. So I think collective responsibility, you know, from the institutions, including companies, but also the individual responsibilities to perhaps not understand but acknowledge there is another point of view. Acknowledge that someone exp someone's experience might have been harder than yours in different ways. That doesn't mean your experience is not valid. That doesn't mean your, your career, you might not have faced difficulties. That doesn't mean, no, we can both, men and women, have faced difficulties, but those difficulties will be different. And perhaps in some cases, if we, and perhaps in, to be fair, a lot of cases, it will have been harder for women to evolve in that particular environment. <coughs> yeah, I think there's that, you know, there's absolutely no doubt that that is the case. And, you know, I think that where you've got people who are trying to compare, well, you know, this is what happened to me and this is, and I don't know. I think that just for, I mean, I, I don't know how you feel personally from being involved, you know, from when I was working in, in education and seeing there are more young young women now that are getting into, that are being interested in engineering. And from my experience, I mean, I'm not I'm not kind of generalizing here, but what I found is is the the, the young women that did come into to engineering were absolutely bob on as well. You know, like really really good. A lot of these have gone on to become already, you know, in in the mid to late twenties, kind of middle 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 management, yeah, being pushed for senior leaders. You know, these yeah. are absolutely bob on so how do we how do we get even better how do we get more young women into the sector and how do we how do we ensure that as you were able to that em employers do i'm not saying offer extra support but how do they make sure that they can thrive and grow with it within an organization so for me there's two things there is encouraging more young women to get in Definitely. And I think that comes just by making it visible. You know, a lot of people do that very well out there. The STEM ambassadors are doing a fantastic job. You know, making sure um, girls know it's a possibility for them. So it's educating the girls and educating the parents as well. Saying that, yes, this is an environment where you, your girls can thrive, that there are careers open there. And for me, and it's perhaps the most tricky, is once they're in, how do we make them stay? Because as you're saying, a lot of the girls, and that's 
that's something I've seen myself. I mean, I, I was like that too. You know, you're a woman in that type of environment. You're not there for, you know, dividending. You love what you're doing. You're motivated. You're focused. You're doing a good job. Because frankly, that's the only option. So you work, you work, you work. And usually the promotion to that first level middle management, no problem. You get there. You have to graft, you know, but you get there. When it becomes more complicated is getting into those senior positions. And then after getting to that director level, that's where it becomes more complicated. And that's where a lot of women give up. So for me, the second challenge is as much as, you know, first challenge, getting girls in. Second challenge, making women stay in STEM. Because I don't have the statistic in, in mind that a lot of women leave the STEM sector. All those efforts to bring them in, to push them up, and they leave. So for me, there is some there we can act on three different levels. One, women need to, to see that it is possible for them to achieve their objectives in those companies. I remember vividly, uh, in, at some point in Safran, there was, um, it's not the case anymore, but the woman, the MD was a woman, one of the business, and at the same time, one of the business unit uh, director was a woman. What message did that send me? It's possible. That's the message you sent me. So we need to, they need to see it's possible. So that means that every company should make a conscious effort and ask themselves, am I diverse enough? What can I do to make those puzzles, to make, to, to have example of that, that's possible. You won't make me believe there's no um, women that are, um, that women are not good enough to be promoted as directors. There's loads of women out there that are really good and that can be promoted as directors. So there need to be a conscious effort. Second, what is the definition of success of the company? You know, in companies where um, the culture is working all hours of the day, where the culture is push yourself, push yourself, push yourself, never complain. You know, a typical man, if I can speak like that, you know, like, I'll take it on, it'll be fine, you know, like, and then piles up, piles up, piles up, piles up. It's not for nothing that men's suicide rates are so high, unfortunately. So some of the company's culture are very masculine in that sense, you know, just don't complain, crack on, you know. Is that, you know, and oh, and, you know, uh, I think, is that really a culture that should remain? Should we have a culture where perhaps being more empathetic, uh, being more open, being more um, talking about things, talking about those elephants in the room um, is perhaps healthier? And I know a lot of uh, people say, well, that's, 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 for, that's for women, you know, that's very typically. I mean, no, it's like everyone can be a empathetic, everyone can be open, everyone can talk about problems, whether they're personal and mental health problems or whether they're work problems, you know. Um, I think it's creating a culture that's healthy, properly healthy, and that will make women stay. Because what ha tends to happen is that if as a woman, you are naturally very empathetic, you are naturally uh, a number of things, you know, 
and you are for years and years and years in an environment that's completely different than you and you mold yourself to the environment you you tend you almost become a different person you ask ask women out there uh, you know in engineering roles do you ever feel like a different person at work and at home they come a point and you know up to a point it's normal we all have work personas you know it's but feeling like a completely different person inside and outside is not normal and it you know it leads to depression it leads to burnout it leads to just a lot of very negative things so a lot of women choose to just leave and to be themselves so creating an environment where women can be themselves as individuals you know some women will be driven more driven than men some women will be less empathetic than men and it should not matter we should all men and women be able to be ourselves our professional self you know at work so changing that culture and the third one so creating visible examples creating a culture that allow every individual to thrive and the third point um, to make sure women stay is for me making sure that they have a clear development plan. And I think that, you know, you'd say, well, it's the same for men engineers. Mm, yes, but I do think there is a tendency in engineering, in the engineering world, in the STEM world, to have women push towards a certain type of jobs. Let's say, um, take a room of engineer with one woman in the room who takes notes of the minutes of meetings. Who's doing all the planning of the Christmas parties or, or what we, you know, of the, or the ongoing projects. Who's doing, you know, all those tasks, use those organizational tasks, those keeping the team together tasks. And that's what they usually promoted really well as well um quickly because they, 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 there's a tendency especially for engineers i mean engineers we are i think more organized you know quite regimented down the way uh and if on the top of that you've got the willingness to do to do it all uh well you know that that helps you uh, that helps you shine but the thing is is that Will that also mean that when you talk with your manager or when you talk with your hr they will say well actually you do really good project manager or actually you'd be really good in that support function or actually where, what you want to do is become an expert uh, in a design expert or a material expert but since that door is open there for progression well you might take that door but it perhaps is away from what if you'd had the choice a true choice where you would have gone i don't think it's um, a coincidence if there is that many women in oh, oh well that many that's a ground world. If there are more women in support functions on uh, manufacturing sites, for example, because naturally that's where they've let, you know, space has been created for them. If you look into the design office, into production manager's office, will you see as many women? And so for me, the third item is making sure there is a true development plan and not the, oh, you're good at project managing. Does that make sense? Mm, absolutely. Um, so I think now 
it would be good to tell tell me a little bit about your business. So we have both recently kind of broken free, broken the shackles, and kind of <laughs> gone, on, gone on to do to launch a business, which is a which is a scary and daunting thing. Um, to kind of risk it all to do something which we are both very passionate about. Um, for me, it's about it's about helping people get opportunities to, to work as an engineer. And for you, it's something a little bit different. Just talk a little bit about your business and about what that business does. So for me, uh, my focus is about supporting women in STEM. So supporting women in male-dominated environments. So what do I mean by supporting? I mean, helping them and helping them solve what keeps them up at night. Be that they don't know uh, how to progress because they've reached a plateau. They've had a conflict with the colleagues. I don't know how to solve it. Um, they, you know, helping them solve what's keeping them up at night. So I do that by mentoring them. So I use my own experience and I also use a lot of coaching techniques. I'm an accredited coach to support them in building a plan that's actionable for them. And very often that starts by looking about at how do I manage myself? Then how do I manage the situation? Then how do I move forward? So that's the first aspect of my work. The second aspect is working with um, male dominating companies who want to make their culture more inclusive. So what do I mean by that? Perhaps recently there's been an incident in a company. Um, I'm not going to uh, quote anything gruesome, but I've seen a few things that were, um, yeah, not not the best. Uh, Perhaps there's been an incident and the company decides to do something about it. So we start by doing an audit of the workforce well-being and the male audit and the female well-being audits will be different with different types of questions asked to target particularly the challenges that both men and women might be facing at work. They are different. They both face challenge, but challenges, but they're different. And once we've had that audit, we look at, okay, how do we improve the situation? So the type of incidents that perhaps triggered the, the work package um, doesn't happen again. So that's one example. Other companies uh, might want to attract more engineers and attract a more diverse uh, workforce. And um, albeit they might not be in in a bad place, you know, but they want to become even better. So um, I do a similar piece of work with them to help them increase um, their inclusivity and make it a better place to work for, in fairness, both men and women. It's going well. I'm not going to lie. This is a roller coaster. <laughs> I with, as we both know, and this is going well. So I started in uh, end of April uh, this year, and it's going well. I've had uh, I now have customers, and what I have found the most rewarding, and I, that I keep hearing again and again and again, is from women both in corporate settings or in one-to-one or when I give a talk or when I go and speak to universities is, I can't believe you said that. So it's good someone talks about those things 
And that really makes me realize that there is a need to voice those topics. Oh, Albeitly, it's uncomfortable. Albeitly, the way I talk about it might not be perfect, but there is power in voicing things because that brings it at the forefront. Yeah, and it is. And I think, like you said, then, you know, and say, I can't believe you've said that. You know, that's a fantastic comment to hear, I bet. You know <laughs> what I mean? That we kind of, and sometimes, you know, things need saying, don't they? That's, 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 you know, things do need saying because if you talk about removing that line that women can't cross, you know. Uh-huh. When, at one point, did anyone say, why is that line there? You know. Exactly. <laughs> no, but, and exactly. And frankly, that's where it all starts, isn't it? And I mean, you know, I spent years and years doing problem solving in my uh, in my various roles. And it's all about the questions you ask. And let's just put it that way. I am not scared of asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> so if you've so that if we've got people listening to this now, if we've got if we've got women that are listening to this either within sat within a position of influence within a company where they can, where, you know, what you are saying really resonates, or you've got other women out there that, that are kind of would like to access your, your help in your gardens. How do they get in touch with you? What's, what's the next steps? So the primer, the primary way to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at valentine at grow and sustain.com. Or you can link with me on LinkedIn, Valentine Pietri. So it's spelled P-I-E-T-R-I. Connect with me, send me a line. I'll be really, really happy to hear from you. Awesome. What we'll do is we'll make sure that your details are kind of attached to, to the podcast so other people can get in touch. But Valentine, wow, you know. An hour has just passed. That's been really, what a great conversation. And I think, you know, super inspiring to hear about the work that you're doing and the difference that you're making, you know. So congratulations with that. And, you know, keep keep flying the flag because I think you're, uh, yeah, I think you're, you're a superstar. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I do get a bit passionate when I talk about those topics. <laughs> no, but thank you. I really appreciate it. I really um, love the work you're doing as well to reframe uh, human resources and how we recruit engineers. Yeah, so I think between us, you know, we just need to start earning some money now, don't we? And then... Let's change the world! Are we not earning money already? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Thank you very much, Valentine. Thank you.